Lord, we, uh, we're grateful for the rain, and we're grateful for the rain. The brown is becoming green. The flowers are blooming again. We're, Lord, we'd ask that you continue to bless us with that and that we would, we would live responsibly and, and you would protect us from ourselves with the floods. We're, we're grateful, though. Lord, bless our time right now. Would you open our souls up to hear what you have for us, how, how you work in, in our lives, what you're like, how we could work, live with you and enjoy you. So make us tender towards that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you an intriguing story today about the love of God and his commitment to change the, those he loves. Uh, to make them like Christ in all of their lives. I want you to listen carefully for the artistry, if nothing else. The efficiency of words, it's beautiful in this section of Scripture in that just a single brush, a single sentence, a phrase will reshape a man's soul. Powerful. I'll start near the beginning. God goes to Abraham and says, have you seen this world? Have you seen the sorrow and the injustice And the injury? Have you seen the disease? Have you even seen the cruelty? Have you witnessed death? God says, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to do something about that. I will redeem that. I will make that well. And he says to Abraham, and I'm going to do that through you and your family tree. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant, Abrahamic promise. He's saying one of your descendants will be the Messiah, and that means the promised one. There will be family and generations ahead of you, Abraham, but each generation there will be one person that will carry on that seed until one day it will become the seed and will fulfill the fullness of what a human is and the titles of the Messiah. He will be the priest, the prophet, and the king of all kings, it will be my own beloved son. So Abraham is, that's what's known as part of it anyway, the Abrahamic covenant. And so Abraham is the beginning of that in this story. He gives that, he passes that promise on to Isaac, his son. Isaac has twin boys. And the firstborn is named Esau, and the secondborn is named Jacob. It's important to understand, for the sake of understanding the story, that Jacob's name could also mean deceitful or deceive or deceiver. And before the boys were even born, God declared to the mother of these twins, the older will serve the younger, which means Jacob will get that Abrahamic blessing. One of the problems in the story is that Isaac, the father, he has a favorite. Daddy's favorite is Esau. And so where we picked it up last week, if you weren't here, I'll try to summarize it quickly. Isaac is getting old He's very old, and he's ill, he's blind, and he thinks he'll be dying soon. And so he talks to Esau and says, Esau, look, never mind what God said about who's going to get this blessing. You go catch some, kill some fresh game, make me some barbecue, and I'll write this will today. You'll get it, everything. And so while Esau is out hunting his prey, Rebekah, the mother, and Jacob, they're hunting their prey. Jacob is dressing himself in his siblings' clothes. He's wearing Esau's clothing, and he's even covered his arms and the back of his neck with hair because that's what Esau is. He's hairy. All the while, mom's making some really great barbecue. The 
kind that Isaac really likes. And, and throughout this story, you can see the, these boys described consistently, the older and the younger and the older and the younger and the older and the younger. And then when Jacob is thrown into the dark world of Isaac, suddenly he says this, it is I, Esau, your firstborn. Not the older, your firstborn. Isaac had a lot of doubts, but for every doubt, there was a deception. And so, you know, pop the cannon. Rebecca and Jacob, they got what they wanted. They won. They, they got the blessing that they were all go, already going to get. And that's how that story is. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the type of person that would dress themselves in their siblings' clothing so that they could lie and then cheat and then steal from their own family just to get what they want, just to get what you want, going through all that. For the love of God, that's a sick, dark soul, and it needs to be fixed. No sooner does Jacob leave uh, the tent after stealing this blessing that Esau shows up, and you better turn the volume down on the surround sound because the next thing we hear is Esau's uh, just this blood-curdling scream. And he says, you know, is it any wonder his name is Deceiver? He Jacobed me, right? And the last thing we hear in this whole section, it'll be 20 years before we hear another word from Esau, he says, I will kill him. So Mother Rebecca <clears throat> doesn't want that to happen. She always has a plan. It's Mother Rebecca, here's her plan. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laman's house in Haran. Stay there for a few days, for a few days. Until your brother's fury subsides, and when your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back uh, from there. Now, why should I lose both you, my husband, and both of you in one day? And so Jacob is alone. This is at chap now we're at chapter 28, and Jacob is alone, and he's, he's fearful, and he's, <clears throat> he's in places of the unknown. He's just in a regular place. And the first time, he runs himself probably to exhaustion as far as he could go. He goes to sleep that night, and he has a visitation from Yahweh God himself. God visits him in this place of fear, and he says this. He says, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. You get the Abrahamic pr promise. And then he says this. Now, this is on top of that. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I've done all these things that I've promised. He gets the Abrahamic promise and this promise of relationship. It's a relationship, silly. I will be with you. And Jacob does what Jacob is. He takes this glorious visitation from Yahweh God himself and turns it into a conditional commitment on his part. Look, look how he responds to this with God. He goes, then Jacob made a vow saying, well, if God will be with me and if he will keep me in, this, in his way that I go, and if, and if he gives me bread to eat, oh, let's see, and clothes, I'm going to need clothes, clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. It's got to be peaceful. Then Yahweh will be my God. And you know what? And all that you give me, I will give you a full 10%. Oh, goodness. 
If you protect me, if you feed me, if you clothe me, if you provide for me, then you, then you will have earned your God in my life, and I will, I'll, I'll give you 10. There you go. Can you imagine a type of person that would have this kind of a relationship with God Almighty and just turn it into a relationship to get stuff from God? <laughs> just trying to get stuff from God. I mean, for the love of God, this is a dark, sick soul, and he needs repair. So Genesis chapter 20, all 28 is committed to this promise from God. Chapter 29 begins with this phrase, then Jacob went on his journey and he came to a land of the people of the East. He went on a journey. Now, whenever you read a book, whenever you watch a movie, even if it's a cartoon, if you see someone going on a journey, wait, no, even in your life, if you see someone going on a journey, it's a classic literary device. It's a metaphor. Their soul is going on a journey. That person is going to be changed. It's, it's, it, it, let's go do scary things together. Let's go. And maybe you have some of those experiences yourself when you went to some place because now Jacob is all alone. He has lost his mother. He's lost his homeland. He's starting all over again. He is off balance. He's weak. Maybe he's teachable. Maybe he's teachable. So he goes up and around the Fertile Crescent. He comes to Haran, and he sees, he goes to this well, and he sees Rachel, Laban's daughter, and she's shepherding some sheep, and this is what happened. Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. And Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, and with Laban's sheep. And then he, he, So he had told Rachel that he was a relative of, of her father and the son of Rebekah. And so Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep out loud. He was so happy. And then... Rachel goes and runs and tells Laban the story. And then when Laban says, oh, my goodness, you're the, you're the son of my sister, he runs and gets Jacob and pulls him into the house. They spend all night just telling stories, and it ends with this wonderful phrase that Laban says, you are truly my own flesh and blood. And this is no mere family reunion. That's why he's overexcited and, 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 and crying and kissing and all that sort of thing going on because this is a validation of God working in his life. This is, he's finally at a place where he, he could have some degree of confidence that he's in God's will. He didn't manipulate his way into running into Rachel, and now he's maybe enjoying how God is working in his life. I'll bet some of you have stories like that, right, where you go to, you're off on a journey, you go to some place, maybe like Austin, and you hope to find a job before the money runs out, and then you do. But it's not just that you found a job, it's the whole, the whole story of how you found the job, right? The, the circumstances were, are way more than circumstantial. We say, it's, it's, it's a God thing, the way this happened. You wouldn't believe it. Let me tell you the story. And then we were able to get a house, and then we were able to find a place for the kids to go, and, and, and they like their friends. And even now in the church, the kids like it, the adults like it. This God is working in our life. And I would say he absolutely, he is absolutely doing that. I think he's expecting us to live a life where he gets to intervene, especially in big stories, so that we'll have a God story attached to it. So that we can say, oh, wait, it's no, it, we, we weren't lucky. God is sovereign, it's way past circumstances. 
providence of God is what's happened here. And so that's, what's happened. that's why Jacob is overwhelmed. He's there for a few months, and then Laban says, hey, look, just because you're a relative doesn't mean I shouldn't be paying you. It, how, what's your fee? You're doing a great job being one of our shepherds. What do we charge? And he said this. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. Older, younger, older, younger. Leah was rather plain looking, but Rachel was lovely in figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he said, I'll work seven years in return for her. I want Rachel to be my wife. And Laban said, well, I mean, I might as well give her to you. I wouldn't want her to give her to anyone better than you. So, yeah. And, and then, watch this. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like a few days because of his love for her. You see that? You see it? It just seemed, but, but, but just a few days. That's the exact words and phrases used in Genesis 27 when his mother, dearest, sent him off to Laban. He says, go to my uncle, La your uncle Laban's house. Get a wife. Just stay there a few days until the wrath subsides, and then I'll send a message for you. This is it. He's, the idea here is this great idea of anticipation. God's providing for him. This is God working in his life. He'll be getting a message from his mother soon because it's been a few days. And so, you know, he's going to get that girl, and then he's going to go home. He waits 2,557 days. That's seven years. And he goes to Laban, and he says this, give me my wife. The time is completed. I want a honeymoon now. And Laban says, yeah, that's what we agreed to. You're right. And so he called upon this great feast. This is like a festival. There was a lot of food. There was a lot of wine. It went all day long. It was an evening wedding. So after the sun goes down and it gets dark, they have the ceremony itself. The bride is in a veil like they do in the Middle East even today. And then he goes to his bridal suite and enjoys his new wife. Oh, Rachel, finally. And then he wakes up the next morning. And the morning came and there was Leah. And so Rachel said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? <laughs> and then Laban says, oh, right. I know there's this thing here. I know I've had seven years to tell you, but Laban says, uh, it's not our practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. And then he says, I'll tell you what we'll do. Look, let's just let this week go. You're a newlywed. Next Saturday, you can get married to Rachel, but you owe me seven more years for her. And Jacob says, okay. What's happening here? <laughs> Jacob says, okay. Why is this happening? Why? And this is such a perplexing story. Scholars have been putting a lot of time to this over the years. For one thing that's happening is the hunter has become the hunted. And he, Jacob, has met his match with Laban. The college boy is playing major league baseball, and the balls are coming at him a lot faster than he can imagine. Imagine this. Imagine somebody dressing up in their siblings' clothes so they could pretend to be someone else so that they could lie, cheat, and steal to get what they wanted. For the love of God, that's a sick, dark soul. And this is part of fixing it. This is part of fixing that. Why have you deceived me, is the phrase. Sounds a lot like, 
Is it any wonder they call him the deceiver? Jacob just got Jacob. That's one of the things that's happening here. But, you know, why is there no fight from, from Jacob? Why is this argument almost going to fisticuffs and then suddenly dying instantly? Why does he stop arguing? And second of all, why doesn't he just get up in the middle of the night and run for it? I'm going to grab Rachel in the middle of the night and I'll leave without them even knowing. It's not beneath him. He'll do it a few chapters later. But he agrees to stay another seven years. So why does he stop arguing and why does he agree to the new plan? Here's why. Because the first time in seven years, a phrase is used and it cuts him in half. The last time we heard this, and Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. And from that point on, the description of the boys and the sisters are older, younger, older, younger, older. Seven years pass, and Laban says, it is not our practice of our place to marry off the younger before the, old, no, before the firstborn. And when that phrase comes back, it penetrates Jacob. He realizes this is God working in his life. This is such an obvious statement of, of God's work. Uh, Robert Alter is a, a very famous uh, Hebrew scholar, and he says, he, he, in his commentary, he's quoting a medieval uh, rabbi that rewrote this in his in a script and, and describing this. And the, the way he put it was, there's this argument, he wakes up the next morning on the day after the uh, wedding night, and he this is an argument between Jacob and Leah. And he looks at Leah and he goes, and he says, I called to you, Rachel, in the darkness, and you responded to me. Why did you deceive me? And Leah said, you called, or your father called Esau in the darkness, and you responded. Why did you deceive him? You see, there's not a lot to talk about when you hear those kinds of words. All of his rage, all of his rage would subsided the moment that phrase, firstborn, hit his ear. He was cut to the quick. Now he is hanging and swinging from his own gallows. Jacob knows what's going on. He knows now what it means to be exploited, what it feels like to be lied to, what it feels like to have something stolen. And so he complies because this is God working in his life. God was working in his life when things were good. God is working in his life when he's living out consequences. So you move to a town. It's a huge risk. You go looking for a job, and you get one before the money runs out. And it's not just that you got a job. It's the way you got a job. It's a God thing. It's an amazing thing where the circumstances are way past circumstantial. It's the sovereign act of God. And you found a house, and the kids like where they're going, and they show up to work the first week, and you say, wait a minute, that's not what I thought. This is like crucibles are us. And the longer you stay, the more you realize you're just being ground in the gravel, and there is no hope of stopping until you become powder. Is God working in that? Yes, he is. God's in that story too. How you relate to God radically affects the way you interpret this story. How you relate to God will radically affect the way that you interpret this story. And if you don't have a relationship with God, you're going to slip into ways of trying to make sense out of this that simply aren't true. You're going to 
think that this looks like retribution. Retribution is when somebody um, gets what's coming to them. It means it, there's, a, there's a tinge of revenge in it sometimes is the motive. But you know what? It's, it's, it's taking a person's past actions and evening the score. Now we're even. That's not what's happening here. If you don't have a relationship with God, it'd be easy to think this is just, just justice. Justice, she's blind. She's emotionless. She doesn't care. If you do this, you get this. That's the, this is the bill. You've got to pay the bill. That's not what's happening here. This is a story of God's love and God's discipline, like the love of a friend or a love of a parent. This is for the sake of Jacob's soul. It's for the love of God, for the love of Jacob, not about his past, what he has done in the past, but about, but about his future and his future self. Retribution and justice say, you did this, now you've got to pay. Discipline says, you did this, don't do it again. So it's focused on the soul of the person for the love of God, the nature of God, and it's focusing on the future. He's becoming like Christ in all of life. And this, the story of marrying the other girl, this is the kindest way that God can use to change this heart. God has orchestrated with his sovereign hand the kindest, gentlest way to rattle this man so that he might change and become like Christ. There's... He, he did this for at least one reason was to make him aware of his illness. He probably didn't care how much he hurt Esau, but he cares now. And now finally he understands. Now finally Jacob is going to write a, a letter home to Esau. And it won't be the sorry bro that he left. It'll be a letter that is pages long and covered in tear stains that reflects a new level of appreciation for what he had done to his brother. He gets it now. How you relate to God will significantly and radically affect the way you interpret this story, your story. Because one of the things that's being projected here, that's being taught to us, is, is this hardship, this experience, is part of the cure. What he's going through is part of the cure to make him well. His problem is pride, amongst other things, but that's the root of most sin, right? And so here's a great definition of, of pride by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. For pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up every possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. That's how bad spiritual cancer is. Pride is spiritual cancer. So I'm taking the metaphor of cancer and saying, well, wait a minute. If you went into a doctor's office and, the, and, the doc, and, and she said, oh, you, you have cancer, then you need to have chemotherapy. So, but what's the motive? Is the doctor saying this because of retribution? How dare you bring cancer into my office? You get chemotherapy. Is it justice? Oh, so you got cancer? You got to get chemo. No, right? If it's a disease that needs a cure, then it's the focus is on not the past. The focus is on the future. The focus is on health. The focus is on the patient. And that's what's happening here with this thing that Jacob has, this illness of pride. It's a cancer that's keeping him from even understanding love. And God's going to do something about it. It's like a parent that uh, if, if pride is addictive, right? And it's, and it's life-destroying. So if you were a parent and your child was addicted to something that was like literally physically a chemical addiction to something, 
and it was self-destructive, it was consuming, it was engulfing, and, and they were living under the umbrella of your love and concern, would you let them live with you and continue this behavior? Would you let them borrow your car? Would you give them money? Would you try to find them another job again? No. No, you wouldn't. Because that's, that's not what love would do. Love would want to help the person see that they need to change. They need to have a better future, and so that means some pain in the present. It was love in the father's heart that watched his son leave, the prodigal son leave, because the only way the child could come back is if he left. And the good father knew that. Yahweh is saying, oh, look, honey, that doesn't look good on you at all. And I'm going to have to rub this off. And you need to brace yourself because this is going to hurt. But we've got to clean this up. If you have a relation with God, when you live with God in hope, it's one of the chapters of the book that we're reading together, living with God in hope, what do you hope for? What are you hoping for from this relationship with God? Are you hoping that you would live a long, pleasant life, that you would die in your sleep later, you know, much later, and be fully healthy when you die in your sleep? That's what I'm hoping for. Honest to goodness, I'm hoping for that. I'm not holding out a great amount of hope, but I, it'd be great. You can't hope for things that you just want. You need to hope for things that he has promised. Here's a promise that you can put a great deal of hope in, that God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You can hope for that. You can, the way we say it, become like Christ in all of life. And so how, if, if you have hope in that, how does that happen? How do you get from where you are right now to becoming like Christ in all of life, in the image of Jesus? Between here and there is the word change, a lot of change. And there's the rub. That's the problem. We hate change. Because change starts with the word repentance. <laughs> and repentance means when you say you're wrong, it's, repentance means I was wrong. And if you grasp the deeper meaning, it means I am wrong. There's something in my soul that is wrong. And these are expressions of that that need to change. And so the hardest part, the hardest part of change is getting us to the place where we want to change, right? I mean, people, people change for two reasons. Fundamentally, they change for two reasons. The pain of staying the way you are finally gets to a level that's so high, it's less painful to change. And, and so, so, you know, if, the, if, it's, if it's okay to stay where you are and it's not all that painful, then you won't change. But if the pain of staying the same gets so high, you'll just do the easy thing and change. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He wants you to become like Christ. You're going to love what he does. The problem is one of his job descriptions is to increase the pain of staying the same so that you'll do the easy thing and want him to change you. That's one reason some people change. They just can't take the pain of staying the same anymore. The second, it's called the hard way. It's called the hard way. There's an easy way. 
It, it, the easy way is a group of people that, that, that are in a relationship with God, and they know the character of God, and they know the love of God, and they know that, they know that God will discipline out of love for the future. He will discipline out of love for the future his children. And, and they know not to be under God. If you've read the book, it means that, that when you feel hardship come your way, you think it's a punishment and you're afraid of him. That's not what he does. He's trying to, he's trying to find the easiest way to help you change so that he can change it. Let me, here's a great story, I think, uh, that'll help. One of the kids, when they were we little, uh, we used to spank them with a spoon when they were bad, and, and one time one of the children came to us, and uh, we did that up until like two years ago, and they just, you know, worked when they were four. Uh, so one of the kids came up to um, Lynn and I and said, and then brought this spoon with them, the spanking spoon, and said, hey, uh, you're going to need this after I tell you this story. So, so they tell us the story, and it's like, okay, I can do my spanking now. It's like, so we don't spank you for what you did. We spank you so that you won't do it again. And so it's clear that you understand what you did and you don't want to do it again. So you don't, you're not living under us. You're living with us. You figure this out. You figured out the easy way and you can run along. <laughs> and the, that child realizes, you know, hey, there, there's an easy way. God, God loves you. has a wonderful plan for life. He's going to make you like Christ in all of life. He doesn't want to beat it into you. <laughs> He would love to love you into it. We quote God Almighty, the Father in heaven, when we say to our children, this hurts me more than it hurts you. It grieves God to put Jacob through this story. But it was the, e it was the not the easiest, it was, it was the least painful way for Jacob to learn. And God uses his sovereignty to do that. How you relate to God will radically influence the way you interpret your life. How you relate to God will radically influence the way you interpret your life. If you don't have a heart for God, if you're not in a relationship with him, then you won't understand his motives for what he does, and, and you'll never deeply change because the, the, the primary reason that you're changing is not out of the grace of God. And that's how people's lives are transformed. It's by grace that we're transformed. And that's why, by the way, that's, that's the people that don't get it. The people that do get it, it's like the rich get richer, you know, because the people that are in deep relationships with God and the more they know God and the more they trust God, the more they're able to discern God's good and perfect gifts. When they go through hardship, they become more tender, more saintly, more godly, you see. They're not misunderstanding or interpreting. One of the, probably the primary application Bible verses for this series is, is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me just show you one phrase in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me just, that be transformed. Could I spend, get nerdy with you? Okay. It's a command. It's in the imperative. Paul is ordering us to be transformed. Now, what's strange is the verb is passive. So he's not ordering us to do something. He's ordering us to stop doing things. Be transformed. It's, it's happening to us. Let God do the work. Quit running around. And, and whatever you're doing, let him do the changing. 
The, the third thing that's interesting is the word transformed is this idea of, it's where we get the word, literally metamorphosis is, is the Greek word here. And the idea of metamorphosis is this intrinsic, internal, complete change from the inside out. Stop these other methods of relating to God. <laughs> Relax. Let the power of God's Spirit transform the way you think, the way you feel, the way you live, the way you choose. That's the spiritual life. It's a relationship. <laughs> Silly. And here's how to make sense out of the story we're reading today. Okay? Here's, here's the punchline. Sometimes hardship and the reason for hardship are related to each other. Sometimes hardship and the reason for hardship overlap a lot. And you should ask God to show you. Listen to his voice. He, the prescription that he is giving you, it's going to fit the illness. You reap what you sow, what you plant, you harvest. What's in your garden? That's a clue. Quite probably, that's a clue. Talk to him. He is with you and will speak to you as to why. In today's example, look, you know, you just look at today's example. Maybe you can relate to today's example. It's iconic, isn't it? So if you're crafty and deceitful, you're probably going to experience the, the receiving end of crafty and deceitful. And so the prescription is to be with God and let him change the values that would cause you to be so crafty and so full of lies. If you're proud and arrogant, may expect to be humiliated. And the prescription would be right there on the side of the bottom, four to six times a day, meet with God. Read your Bible as though he's writing it to you. Be transformed. Let that transform your thoughts. Contentious? If, if two or more people have said that you're difficult to work with, there's your sign. You're contentious. It's not them. It's you. Stop fighting the metamorphosis. He wants to change you from the inside out and completely. He wants you to become like Christ. You're going to love what he does with your life. You could do it the hard way or you could cooperate with his plan and put hope in that. The prescription that he'll give you is out of love for your future. That's the God we serve. That's what this story is all about. Can I tell you how this worked in my life one time? Uh, my, this is a long time ago. My brother and I, I think we were at a family wedding. Everybody was there. And just because of some very strange circumstances, um, I put him in an awkward position. It was just awkward, but then it escalated to embarrassing. And then he He's, he had a temper, and so he, he escalated to the point where he was humiliating himself. And I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, for the most part, I didn't know what I was even doing. But it was bad, really bad. When we got back to Austin, Melinda said, you need to write your brother a letter, and you need to apologize. And I said, I have nothing to apologize for. I guess I could write, you know, dear Mark, I'm sorry you humiliated yourself in front of so many people but I don't think that's going to help. But it was a big enough rift. It was pretty obvious that our relationship would never, ever be the same. This is not something time would just kind of brush away. And knowing that God loves families, you know, liking each other, Melinda and I prayed 
you know, help me understand. I'll, I'll write the letter. I just don't know what to write. Months later, we're over at the Arboretum across the street. The kids are little. She's on the, the marble cows, the sculptures over there. And, and I was with the other two children by the fountain. There was a fountain there. And just seems like out of nowhere for no apparent reason, she starts yelling at me. And it wasn't like yelling, yelling. She's screaming at me. Something about the kids going to drown and stuff. So it wasn't important. <laughs> but she turned it into some, uh, like a really big deal. And so I yelled back at her, yeah, I'm watching them. There were two. I thought there was one. So it's, look, it's my story. I'll tell it the way I want to, okay? So most of this is Melinda's fault. And so she's going back and forth. So we're going back and forth. The whole courtyard separates us. And by this time, everybody's turned on the dad. And they're looking at me. And I'm, we're celebrating 33 years on Friday. This is the single maddest I have ever been with her in 33 years. We get to the truck. And we're about to leave the Arboretum, and I said, I'm walking home. I don't want to, and then I went, gee, this is a long walk. I'm not walking home. I'm sitting in the car, and I'm not talking. So then we finally got the kids to bed, and she said, you know, and I looked at her like, you owe me an apology. And she said, for what? I didn't do anything wrong. You weren't watching the kids. They could drown. I guess I could say, I'm sorry you humiliated yourself in front of all those people. And I went, oh, got it. And I got out a pad of paper and I got, started writing a three-page letter to my brother. He called me the minute he read it and said, thank you for this letter. I said, I'm sorry I hurt you. We were closer after than we ever were before. Can you just stop for a second and think about the love of God in this story? There's a lot going on in the world. And yet he rearranged circumstances in his sovereignty so that I might learn something the hard way so that I might be able to repent and change. God is committed to doing that in our lives. It, it's humbling, isn't it? That he would, like in Jacob's life, in my life, in your life, that he would come after us with so much determination to make us like Christ in all of life. You're going to love what he does in your life. Go the easy way. Go the easy way and see how, when you're with him, you can see him as a doctor or a loving friend or a parent. That's the God we serve. He wants to have a relationship with you, and he wants to make you well. Let's pray that we could cooperate and enjoy him in that context. Lord Jesus, we lift up uh, this story to you and the story that's written in our lives. Well, I'd ask, God, that your spirit would bring to our minds maybe a story where you've already, you've already done your magic and we are not interpreting it well. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us remember the things that we might have endured, but now from your point of view. Lord, I'd ask that you maybe would bring us a friend that could help us interpret our history from your point of view. Lord, I'd ask that we would pursue knowing you, the God that's in this story, that you cared so much about this rebel that you would go to this extreme so that he might hear in a new way. Lord, would you do that in our lives? A church full of people that want to learn the easy way, 
but are willing to endure the hard way so that we might be with you. That's what we need to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.